Turn in the scriptures with me to Psalm 87. It's been my custom as I preach in this or that church to be going through as a kind of a personal series this, these books in this part of the second, the third book of the Psalter and coming now then to Psalm 87. It's not necessarily a part of a series that we're doing here at Res Pres. But it is the case that whenever there is a renewal or a revival in the churches of Christ, such as there was at the time of the Reformation, which we're celebrating now, the 500th year of the beginning of the Reformation, the Psalms always take a large and larger role in the life of the churches and of the individual Christians. God has given us a prayer book in the Psalter and a delightful resource for our spiritual lives. So I invite you to look with me then at God's Word in Psalm 87. It's introduced as one of the Psalms of the sons of Korah. There's a number of those Psalms here in this section of the Psalter. And it's typified as a song, and you can, just, you can feel the joy as we read it together. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read God's word from Psalm 87? On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the, whole, the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, Selam. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records, as He registers the peoples, this one was born there. Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Would you bow with me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that the same Spirit who inspired these words would move in our minds and hearts, the one who speaks and all of us who listen. O Lord, speak to us, or this is a vain exercise indeed. Open our minds of understanding and help us, we pray, to prosper from this reading of your word, we ask. Show us Christ, we pray, for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. In the Psalms, God gives us a balanced diet, just exactly what we need. A number of these Psalms, at the end of this book three, are dealing with the darker side of our life and our experience. For example, in Psalm 85, the psalmist speaks about God being angry with his people, feeling like God is punishing us. And in the first verses of Psalm 86, the psalmist expresses his great trouble. His life is threatened, in verse 14 we see. 
If you look at the psalm after our psalm, Psalm 88, the Psalter comes to its lowest, most depressed point. If you look at verse 3, he says, My soul is full of troubles. Verse 6, You've put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 7, You overwhelm me. Verse 16, Your dreadful assaults destroy me. And then at the end there, it says, and this is reaching the lowest point, it seems to me. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Or that may be translated, darkness has become my closest friend. The Psalms are so helpful to us. One reason being, they show us that our brothers and sisters have walked the same dark, difficult, and painful path that we may find ourselves in at this point. We have an encouragement as we see that uh, they are making this, the, the, they are lamenting as they're going through the, the, uh, the distresses of this life in a broken world. But the, the Psalter not only gives us, shall we say, laments in their dark uh, tones, but it gives us moments uh, of, of song as well. And here, this is what we see in Psalm 87. We get a balanced diet. Not only sympathy when we suffer, but flashes of glory to show us that we are indeed on the good path. And we so need this. We so need this. We who are tempted to turn away from the Lord, who are tempted to leave uh, His church, we see these, these assurances that we are indeed on the way to happiness. That the Christian way is the happy way. It is the joyous way. That it's worth it to hang on in the Christian community despite difficulties. And that being a member of the church is the highest possible honor that you could ever have. Let me emphasize that again. That being part of the people of God is a reason for deep confidence and joy in this life. If you look at our psalm carefully, you may have noticed at the end of verse 3, a little word, selah. At the end of verse 6, you'll see that same expression again. What does that little word mean? I wish I knew what that word meant. I'm not sure. It's probably some instruction for the musicians or something like that. But it does provide a nice divider, kind of a poetic divider of the psalm. So we'll take the psalm in three sections. And three points. First, verses 1 through 3, then verses 4 through 6, and then finally, verse 7. So look with me first at verses 1 through 3. And we'll consider this under the main topic here the city of our God. The city of our God. Our first point from verses 1 through 3. Psalm 87 is classic poetry. These lines are short pregnant, very suggestive. If you took them by themselves, you might not know exactly what was being talked about. But if you take them as a whole, the topic becomes quite clear. What's being talked about in the psalm? Verse 1, the city, the city he founded. And what is the name of this city? If you look carefully, the earthly name, the political name of the city is not mentioned at all. Of course, he's talking about Jerusalem. But that, that name is not used 
at all. The name that's used, as we look at verse 2, is the name Zion. The spiritual, the ideal name of the people of God, we might say. Verse 2 is emphasizing Zion, the people of God, as his chosen ones, as his elect and particularly beloved people. We read that he loves Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Psalm 78, verses uh, 67, 68, says something quite similar. It says, He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. That's the same word as we see in our verse 1 as well. The scripture tells us that the Lord has a chosen place and a chosen people. But this psalm is more than just about bricks and mortar. I remember someone taking us on a tour around the modern walls of Jerusalem and telling us that we were fulfilling Psalm 48, verse 12, where it says, Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers. And at the time I thought, now hold it. These, these walls were built by the Muslim Turks? Were they building Zion? I think that was too literalistic a way of thinking about that. Psalm 87 is talking about something other than architecture when it's speaking about Zion here. If you look at verse 1, you might think almost that, that uh, Jerusalem is a city built on a series of mountains, kind of the climactic mountain, uh, as it were. It says literally that he built that it speaks of, he founded it not on the mountain, but on the mountains, plural. But actually, physically, Jerusalem is on a rather unimpressive ridge. Uh, I, would, I dare say Point Loma would be a more uh, interesting place to build a city than uh, Jerusalem on a low ridge surrounded by uh, mediocre mountains that are not very different from uh, what we have here in San Diego County. But again, the point is, the focus of Psalm 87 is not on topography. The focus is not on geography. Right? The focus is on the security and on the privileges of the church, the people of God, the elect from every age, God's chosen, beloved people across the centuries. Are you familiar? Perhaps you, uh, you heard that in our title, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Are you familiar with the hymn along these lines that was written by that uh, slave trader converted and become uh, preacher John Newton? Do you remember that hymn? Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. Really a wonderful hymn. He goes on. He whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy Sure repose, with salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayst smile on all thy foes. Can you see? Newton got it right from Psalm 87. It's the security, it's the privileges that we have as the people of God. Now I hope when you read verse 2, this psalm as a whole, I hope you're not offended by its particularism. We give ourselves room 
we love some people more than we love others, but somehow we, in this age, God is not allowed to have a discriminating love. But this psalm has a discriminating love. Our Lord Jesus was very particular when he talked about uh, God's love. He said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, uh, 22, he said, salvation is from the Jews. He was very particular. He said, the love of God that leads to deliverance comes through this one people. That's very particular. It's from the Jews. It's from the Jews, Jesus said. And then, even more shockingly, Jesus says that that salvation is connected with himself in a way that's quite shocking and offensive uh, for folk today. He says in John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is particularism, right? And this is offensive in our make-no-distinctions culture today. But if you've been humbled as you hear the requirements of God, even as we heard it in the reading of the law, you'll quickly admit that this is your only hope. You know that you have no potential of saving yourself, that you, need to take, that you need God to take the first step to save you, right? And that's what Jesus says in, in John chapter 6, verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this is the good news, that it's God who draws. That he who chooses, he who takes the first step, he who reaches out to us. So this teaching of election, it may sound scary at first, but it's tremendous good news because it means that God in every age is laying hold of us and taking us as his people. From the very beginning, he has his elect people. Cain was not, but Abel was, right? Ishmael was not, but Isaac was the recipient of God's mercy. Not that he was any better than his brother, but God had mercy, right? Esau was not, but Jacob was. Those Jews who rejected the Lord Jesus and refused to the end to respond to the message of the apostles were not. But those Jews who responded to the Lord Jesus in his wonderful invitations and who responded on the day of Pentecost and the preaching of Peter, those Jews who responded were elect. They were uh, God's chosen ones in that time and in that day. This is extraordinary. And now in our psalm, and I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but there's this expansiveness. There's this expansiveness at God drawing in people from the outside. God saves his elect. The apostle expresses it in this paradox way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... The elect, that is, it is the power of God. And he speaks about, later on, it pleased God through the folly of what is preached to save those who believed. The Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those who are called. God has his called from within the Jews, and, remarkably, God has his called from the Greeks as well, the outsiders as well. Jesus says something quite similar 
to Psalm 87 in Mark 13, verse 27. He says, The day will come when he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is this particularism, the particularism of God's love on his chosen people, the city of God, or as we just sang in this last, I will dwell in the house of God forever, the people of God, to be part of that people. One of the most famous books, one of the most famous Christian books ever written is called by this, it takes its title here from verse 3. It's called The City of God. City of God. I'm so glad that we have our newest member here in the church. He gets his name ultimately from this, the man who wrote that book, whose name is Augustine. Call him Augustine or Augustine or Augustine or however you'd like. But he was a church leader in North Africa and he wrote this book as it were, when Rome was still burning, between 413 and 426, he wrote this book and he called it The City of God. And he said, The Gentiles who believed added to those who are true Israelites, both by descent and by faith, they together constitute the city of God. Augustine showed that in every area, era of history, God has his people. He has, there is the city of God and there is the city of man. Or to put it more exactly, that, that the city of God, that is God's people, live in the city of man, in secular societies who are more or less ungodly and that they will, they will collapse in the end. A number of us had the privilege... Uh, in the spring to go to Israel and I had the chance to lecture standing on the site of Megiddo. Now, Megiddo has 25 occupation layers. That means 25, not 25 centuries, much, much longer than that. 25 civilizations lived on that one spot. That's the spot we call Armageddon. It's, a very, it's the chokehold point for a kind of geopolitical strategy through Palestine. It's a very important place. But virtually every one of those occupation layers ends in what? In a thick layer of black ash. Why is that? Fire. Destruction. Destroyed, Right? The city of God, as we see here, cannot be destroyed. (laughs) If you are in the city of God, you're on the winning, enduring side. But the city of man, it cannot endure. It cannot endure. This is sobering when we think about our societies as well. Here in San Diego, how many civilization layers do we have here? Basically one. We've been around here for this building is a bit over 100 years old, right? The whole, our whole city is no more than 200 years old, right? So it's basically one layer. Do we think that this city will endure forever? Is this city our hope? Rome, even after a thousand years, burnt, right? Do we think this city will, will endure forever? Is this our forever community? And the answer, of course, is no, no, no. Abraham sets the pace for us and for people of faith in every generation. Abraham was promised something, but it was not Palestine. 
He was looking for something else as we read of him in Hebrews 11 verse 9. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. And what does it say? He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, same expression as in our uh, psalm here, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was looking something beyond the city where the Jebusites lived in his day. He was looking to this eternal community that God himself was establishing. We read in Psalm 48, verse 8, the city of the Lord of hosts, the city of our God, which God will establish. This is what Abraham is looking for. The work of God in forming for himself this community, this people. We read about Abraham in Hebrews 12, 22, speaking about this, this people, this church, if I can use that term to talk about God's people in both Testaments and even now, that the Lord is building. This is, this, this is a reality of you if you're a believer. It's, it speaks here in Hebrews 2, uh, 12, 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem. This is a reality for you as a believer now. This is your city. This is the city of God. You are connected to this eternal community even as you're connected to Christ by faith. So this is what he's talking about here in verses 1 through, four, one through 3. Look with me then at verses 4 through 6. Here it speaks not so much of the city of our God, but the city, our mother, if I can put it that way. The city, our mother, our mother. We have a custom in, uh, in English of referring to different countries as feminine. So, for example, God bless America, and I won't afflict you with my singing again. Thank you for your patience. But what do we, what do we say in God bless America, right? We say, stand beside her and guide her, right? It's a, it's a poetic reference, but it's using the feminine for uh, the country. And we see, look at verse 5. If you look carefully, you'll see the same thing is happening, right? It says, Of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in him. No, it. No, her. Her. Treating Zion as a woman. Now, if you're familiar with the prophets, that's no surprise. Isaiah treats Zion as a woman again and again and again, right? Particularly as a woman who is giving birth and having children or being surprised by it. There's all kinds of wonderful imagery. We don't have time to talk about all that. Uh, but Zion as a woman. Zion uh, in 51 verse 1, this barren woman that will have many children. Uh, chapter 49 speaks about these surprised children coming to uh, Zion. 60, 62, uh, 66 verse 8 speaks about Zion being in labor, bringing forth children. This is a very rich image of Zion as a woman, and particular Zion as a mother. Zion as a mother. And this idea of birth is repeated in our psalm again and again, three times here in these verses. Born in Zion, born in Zion, born in Zion. This birth imagery is very, very important. It's similar in some ways to what Jesus says in John chapter 3. He talks about being born from above or being born again. What does God do for his, uh, his chosen people? He, he makes them born again. He regenerates them. Can you, see, can you hear the, the, the reproductive language there? 
This, this terminology about birth can, in Hebrew, can go either way. The, the word here, those are you Hebrew geeks that are here, uh, this yalad, goes either for the male part or the, or the female part. It can refer to either one. And we can say, we don't want to be overly literal here, these are metaphors, but that God fathers us and the church mothers us. The church mothers us. God does this, does this regenerating work in us. Peter expresses it this way in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ through, from the dead. Right? So on the basis of what God has done in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Christ, on the basis of that, God causes you to be born again and to have a new life in his church. It's interesting to note that uh, in verse 5, in the Greek translation, which is the first translation of the Hebrew text, it's a very free translation. It actually uses the word mother. It's not literally there in the Hebrew, but it goes on and puts in the word mother. That's a notable point. And perhaps, I'm not sure, but perhaps that's behind Paul's reference in Galatians chapter 4, verse 20, when he speaks about the Jerusalem above that is free and she is our mother. Right? Wherever he, he got that image from, it surely penetrates, it's here in Psalm 87, that, that the church, the city of God, is our mother. We have a spiritual home with her. Praise God by grace. Now, it's not so much the particularism of this psalm that's the shocker of Psalm 87. What's the shocker of 87 is when we turn to ask the question, who is in the church? Ah, there's the shocker. Look at verse 4, right? God is making a mention, he is, he is remembering, and he is, he is pronouncing the list of his people. We have a similar image in verse 6. God is, as it were, sitting and recording, making a list of his people. And verse 6 has the idea of an authoritative pronouncement. So when the minister says, I now pronounce you man and wife, that is a statement that produces something. It's not just empty words. It has authority. And that's verse 6. The Lord, when he speaks, he establishes the record of who is in his, the list of his people and who is not. Who is in the list of his people? The children of Abraham? Surely. Right? But as we think, as we expect, particularly from an Old Testament point of view, is it simply the Jewish people? Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Now, who is Rahab? Rahab is Egypt. Who is Babylon? Of course, that's Iraq now, right? But these are the enemies of God's people. What? Rahab, who enslaved God's people for centuries? What? Babylon, who captured them and hauled them off into, uh, into uh, exile? Yes, yes. Then look, even worse, goes on Philistia, Tyre. These again, these are the enemies 
of God's people. As we see from Psalm 83, verse 4, they say, here's the enemies speaking against the, the, uh, uh, Israel. Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the, uh, the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. And then it says, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Do you mean that this psalm is saying that the enemies of God will be listed amongst his people? Is that what it's saying? And the answer is, yes. That's a shocker. That's what's so radical here, right? That God takes those who have no right to be in his people, those who by their their actions have shown themselves hostile to him, who have no natural inheritance, who have no natural claim to be part of the people of God and all the inheritance that comes with that. And he, by grace, makes them a part of that people. That's, that's exactly what this psalm is saying. That's exactly what it's saying. Now, I am not confusing the difference between the church and the state, and I'm not preaching politics here, but I want you to think with me for a second. This past year brought out from the left and from the right the, the issues of immigration, issues of citizenship, naturalization, how to deal with foreigners. These are major issues, right? And the, the, camp, the people had major differences on this whole question. This is a super uh, important, super contentious uh, political issue. But I want you to imagine just for a second, okay? Imagine for a second. Imagine Donald Trump. As soon as he takes office, he does all that he can and makes a declaration that every person in this country who is in this country as an illegal immigrant, the millions of people who are in this country as illegal immigrants, that he gives a full amnesty and he gives the rights of full citizenship immediately to all these people. Just imagine that for a second. The shocker that that would be. Now I want you to go a step farther. I want you to imagine all the hundreds of thousands of people that have come out of the humanitarian crisis in Iraq and Syria particularly. We're talking the largest, uh, the largest immigration of people fleeing violence that has happened since World War II. This is obviously huge. Imagine uh, pr- uh, President Trump opening the doors of the United States, flying all those people in, and giving each one a passport as soon as they stepped off the plane with no background check or anything. Here you have all the rights of a citizenship, a citizenship within the U.S. You cannot, be, you cannot be persecuted for your beliefs. You have the, the, the right to the rule of law. Your person cannot be, you will be protected by law from someone killing you. No one can kill you. You have the right of participating in the government. Your children have the right of a free education. You don't have to pay at all for that. If you're sick, you have no money, you cannot be refused treatment at the local hospital. Can you, and there's a whole list. I could talk, we could talk all night. The privileges that we have that many other people in, around the world don't have. Can you imagine that? Him doing that? That is, that is insufficient as a picture of how flowing and amazing and shocking and how inclusive the grace of God is that reaches out to all of us and brings us in with no background checks, right? It's, this is the grace of God. The shocker of the psalm is not its particularism. 
It's its inclusivism. That's the shocker, at least from an Old Testament point of view. It's not election. It's the universalism, if I can carefully use that term. God, in his strange and wonderful grace, he takes outsiders and he makes them insiders and he gives them the privileges of the family, right? This is quite extraordinary. This is quite extraordinary. It is, of course, precisely this point that got the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, the rabbi, when he comes to this point, this is what got him almost killed again and again. Do you remember as he gives a speech in Acts 22, verse 21? There's a big ruckus at the temple, and they haul him off, and then he gets a chance to, give a, he gets a chance to make a speech in front of uh, the people of Jerusalem, right? And they listen, and he speaks Aramaic to them, and they listen to him very carefully. And then, in verse 21, as soon as he mentions God's care for the Gentiles, God's care for the pagans, God's care for the outsiders, those who are not Jewish, what happens? Death. Death. Up with the dust. Kill this man. He's not worthy to live, right? The, 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 the hostility against this idea of God bringing in outsiders into his people, this is the great shocker. This is the great shocker. The good news from Psalm 87 is that there is a place for you and you and you at at the table with the people of God. This is the good news, right? Some of us have the privilege of coming from Jewish backgrounds. That is a wonderful thing. But these promises are not just for those few of us that come from Jewish backgrounds. These promises are for those of us that come from Asian backgrounds, are for those of us that come from European backgrounds, pagan backgrounds, for those of us that come from African backgrounds. There are two references to Africa here. Obviously, Kush is Sudan, Ethiopia, and uh, Rahab is Egypt, right? Brothers, friends, The good news of this psalm is that the invitation is for all of us. If you'll respond and bow the knee to Christ, the invitation here is for you. This is is an open, a wonderfully open door. Now, you might think that the Jews should have known better because the promise goes way back to the very beginning, does it not? What was God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 18? God says to Abraham, in your seed, who will be blessed? All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And of course, the seed ultimately refers to our Lord Jesus. It's through him, the the literal descendant of Abraham, that the blessing comes to us Gentile Christians. But again, step back. It's we who are Gentile believers, we who are non-Jewish Christians, which is most of us, we can easily take this for granted. Of course it's for us. But Paul, had, he never had that idea. He, he had completely the opposite sense. I want you to listen for the sense of shock, the sense of amazement in the words of the apostles as, as he expresses it in Ephesians 3, in verse 6. He says, This mystery is that the Gentiles, those outsiders, speaking about us, those Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And he says, To me the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
which, and then he says, this is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we, Jew and Gentile, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. To be connected to Christ is to have a place on the inside. It's to be part of the people. Now, the Bible uses a whole variety of pictures. We, we call these metaphors. Metaphors, right? These are word pictures. And he uses metaphors from family language, political metaphors. He uses temple imagery to talk about uh, us as members of Zion. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 2. We stopped our earlier reading at verse 10, but listen to Ephesians 2, 13. The apostle says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He goes on to say, You then are no longer strangers and aliens. That's political language, right? You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's family language. You're part of the family. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now he goes on to temple language. Listen to this. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Brothers, sisters, I am sorry, but this text says, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, and I am not able in my stuttering, limited language to explain the vastness of the glory. This is too much. There There are so many glorious things unspeakably glorious, or as Paul said earlier, unsearchably glorious things. Family privileges, political privileges, temple privileges. These are, these are vast and great uh, privileges, right? Listen to how, how the Lord Jesus talks about some of your stability in this temple. He says in Revelation 3.12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. My friends, you who have closed with Jesus Christ, you who have received Christ as your Savior, as your only hope, you who have bowed your knee before him as your Lord, right? These are the beginnings of your privileges. These are your privileges that will not end and will continue throughout this life and even beyond. These are some of the things that's being suggested in verses 4 through 6. Let's finish by looking at verse 7, shall we? This is, in speaking about these springs, he's talking about joy, right? This city is not only the city of our God, the city is not only our mother, the city our mother, but now let's talk about the city of our joy, the city of our joy. Verse 7 is all about joy. We've just come off Christmas. Christmas is supposed to be a time of, well, we talk about tidings of comfort and joy, which we do have in the gospel, but 
perhaps in January, we remember back, it's not all... It's not always easy, and perhaps it wasn't exactly what you were expecting or what you were hoping for. Family relations can be difficult. Looking at the, uh, the bill when you get it on your credit card uh, may be unpleasant, uh, maybe a little overwhelming for some of us, right? How is it that you can have joy, real joy, right? Joy that's more enduring than the toys that you got. You got some good toys at Christmas. I hope you did. But those toys, maybe in six months, we won't have the same delight in those toys that we have uh, at the beginning. The only way for you to have a solid happiness, the only way for you to have a, a, a dependable joy is to have happiness and joy in something that's deeper and higher than the waves of your experience in this world. It has to be above that. It has to be more stable than the tides and the waves of trouble and of, glory and, of, uh, and of pleasure that come to us in this life. It's, it's interesting, Jesus, where he directs his uh, apostles' uh, attention. There's an interesting text in Luke 10, 20. And he says, don't rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. They have a power to cast out demons. Don't be happy. That's pretty awesome pretty awesome. Don't be happy about that, he says. Jesus says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the stability. The stability that will give you a foundation for joy that can face anything is to know that your name is written in heaven. It's outside of you. It's secure. It's unassailable. It's unchangeable. That's the foundation for our happiness. Verse 6, I, I love that, that, that section here. It's no matter where you come from, when you're connected to Christ, your name is written in the book of life. It doesn't matter if you were born in Bakersfield, if you were born in Waterloo. It doesn't matter if you were born in Tijuana. You know, If you're connected to Christ, you were born in Zion. And you have all the right of the privileges of a citizen of the people of God. Everything is yours, by grace, by grace. I love the reference in Isaiah 4. It speaks somewhat similarly to everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Psalm, uh, uses, Psalm uh, 69, 29 speaks about the book of the living, Ezekiel 13. We're talking about this book imagery in verse 6. It talks about the register of the house of Israel. Very interesting, very interesting. Listen to the way Peter expresses this. Where is it that Peter wants you to rejoice, uh, to put your happiness? Where does Peter, where does the scripture as a whole, want you to have the, the, the foundations of your joy? Listen, listen. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Friends, this is the secret to happiness. This is the secret. How is it that you can lose your job 
your financial security, for one reason or another, goes out the window, how can you still have a, a, a foundation for happiness? It's because of this. Let's say you lose your spouse to death or betrayal, divorce, whatever it is. How is it that you can face that kind of a blow in this life and still have happiness? It's this. It's having it beyond the waves of this life. It's having this, this sense of God's commitment to you in Christ and the imperishable and unfading, as Peter calls it, inheritance that is yours, right? This is the secret. This is the secret. Calvin speaks about verse uh, 7, and he says this, All our affections are then settled on Zion, that is the church, when, gathered in from the vague and vain objects by which they are distracted, and regarding with indifference the honors, pleasures, riches, riches, and pageantries of the world, they find enough to engage and satisfy them in the spiritual glory of Christ's kingdom and in that alone. Right? This is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing. Psalm 7 expresses it in terms of a spring. In terms of a spring. As you go a little bit into East County, you see just how important water is. Now, we've been blessed with a lot of rain here, and it's fantastic. But generally, during the, what happens during most of the year? Everything is brown except some source of water. Where is agriculture possible? It's only with some spring. Now, we have piped in now, we have wells, etc., etc. But in the ancient world and the, the, the geography of the Bible world, uh, particularly Judah is very similar to our geography here. What? There's only life where there's a spring. So what does it mean for the singers and the dancers to say, as they say in verse 7, all my springs are in you. What does that mean? My life is in you. My happiness is in you. My hope is in you. And here is the question. Where is your spring? Where are your springs? Your springs, all of us have springs. The things that you are looking to for your happiness, the things that you keep going back to for your comfort, for your point of orientation to make things well, for you to feel good, for things to be right with you, that, whatever it is, is your spring. Those are your springs. Where are your springs? Do they line up with verse 7? Let me give you an example. Some of us know that very promising spring it's a chemical spring. It's called, it's called heroin, right? It's called heroin. Oh, it's a very promising spring. You take this spring and you will feel so good. All your, pro- all your problems will fade away. You won't, feel, you won't think about your problems anymore. They'll, they'll, be, they'll, they'll vanish, right? Heroin is a very seductive spring. But what does it give you in the end? It gives you death gives you death, right? literally death. My friends, all, the th- all other springs outside of this spring, will, they will disappoint you. They will ultimately give you death if you try to make them your ultimate goal. Now, there's many good things to enjoy in this world, many pleasures. Relationships are good things. Money is a good thing. A house is a good thing. A job is a good thing. If you put your ultimate trust in any of these things, the sweetest frame I dare not trust. 
but wholly lean on Jesus' name. If you trust in anything, it will disappoint you. It will disappoint you, right? It is only this spring where the singers and the dancers say, all my springs are in you. It's in the Lord and in his Zion. It's in his eternal community and being connected with his people, right? This is the one that does not disappoint, does not disappoint. The, the evening of May 24th, 1993, was surely one of the most memorable nights that I ever spent. As a white guy with a camera, I was able to pass the guards and go in, and I was standing next to the flagpole when independence was declared for the first time in one of the world's newest countries called Eritrea. Eritrea, Northeast Africa, the northern part of, previously the northern part of Ethiopia. The Eritrean People's uh, Front for Liberation, which is the, 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 the name of the political party that led the Africa's longest armed struggle, 25-some years, fighting for independence. They had been victorious. And it was on that day, with the soldiers marching in, that they proudly raised their national flag and they took their place amongst the nations of the earth. This is a very big deal. A big, big deal. And that night I saw 400,000 people dancing in the streets. It was a glorious time. And they were very proud and they said, we will not follow the typical African way of falling into these dictatorships. We will not go that way. We will take our place as a democracy. Right? But what happened? Here comes a year, two years. Let's have elections. Let's have constitution. What's happened? That very promising day has devolved, and I won't go into the details, but into one of the most repressive regimes in the world. It's like second to North Korea and how oppressive it is, including brothers and sisters in Christ, in jail, in jail, right? Though if you put your hope in any government, no matter what the trouble has been, no matter how promising, if you put your hope in a government, in a political party, it will surely disappoint you. No matter what the hopes of this world are, they will disappoint. It is only through Christ and having our, our hopes in him and being part of his city the city of God, the people of God, having our membership and our privileges in his church, it is only there that we can have a stable, secure foundation for our happiness and joy in this life, that we can sing and dance despite the ups and the downs, the losses, the gains, and the troubles that we go through. It is through being connected to Christ and being connected with his church that you can say, along with John Newton, Savior, if of Zion City I by grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. None but Zion's children know. Let's pray.
Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not leave the fallen human race to hell and destruction, which we deserved. We thank you that you promised from the very beginning to save yourself a people. And we thank you that on the last day that people will be fully revealed, standing around your throne, a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, clothed in white robes, a multitude that no one can count, singing your praise and saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we thank you that our place in that multitude is not self-achieved, not because we are so moral, not because we are so good, not because we are so smart, but because you are, so, you are so good and you are so kind. We thank you for these amazing invitations that you'd give us citizenship in a people where we were aliens, that you'd give us sonship in a family that we had no right to, that you'd give us an inheritance where we deserved only rejection, and that where we were far off, that you include us in your very temple, to be inhabited by your own spirit and to have an intimate relationship with you, tastes, glimpses of which we get in this life, refreshment, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, perseverance and an increase of grace in this life, beginnings of glory which is to be consummated tomorrow. Lord, thank you for what you give and what you will give, an inheritance undefiled, unfading, that cannot be shaken. Lord, thank you for what you give us in Christ. Affirm to us now your, the, your grace to us in Christ as we come to the table, as we eat and smell and taste the gospel. Thank you for this news of good, of good tidings from Christ, of your good will toward us in him. We thank you for him. He is our hope. He is our help. He is our joy. All our springs are in him, Lord. Thank you for making us part of your church by grace. Amen.